two Sundays ago, we dipped our toes into John chapter 13, and we looked at this incredibly humbling and emotional story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Now, the scene, of course, is in the city of Jerusalem on the night before the feast of the Passover, and arrangements had been made for a private room. I'm going to put this picture back on the screen just to give you a a visual. We looked at this two weeks ago. Something looks something like this. Arrangements were made for this private room where Jesus now gathers with his closest friends, the 12, for one final time before his arrest. And it's in this moment where he is going to institute the ordinance of communion. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, this is where he is going to leave with his disciples some of the most important lessons and instructions in all of Scripture. Now, we know from the other gospel writers that the 12 entered the room that night without a clue as to what was really going on. No clue at all. In fact, Luke tells us that as they were in the room, they began to argue, debate amongst themselves. And this is so ironic, and, and, and if it weren't so sad, it'd be funny, right? That they're debating about who's going to be the greatest among them when Jesus establishes his kingdom. <laughs> Amazing. And so during the meal... Jesus, knowing the hearts of of all men, knowing that his hour was about to come, knowing that Satan had already entered into Judas, and knowing how dangerously immature his friends were at this moment, he determined to teach them a lesson. Not just in word, but a lesson in deed. A, A living parable that would stick with these 11 men for the rest of their lives. So he got up from the table without a word. Now that's strange, right? The Passover meal, Jesus is in the Father's position at the table in the center and everybody's enjoying this fellowship meal and suddenly, without a word, he gets up and he walks away from the table. And he goes over, I imagine this wash basin was in the corner of the room somewhere because there was an anticipation that somebody would be there to serve and to wash the feet of the guests as they come in. So he goes to this wash basin and he grabs it and the text says that he laid aside his outer garments. He took off his robe. He took off his tunic. And we saw two weeks ago by, that what he was doing was intentionally taking on the appearance of a slave. The sovereign God of the universe who taken on flesh, God the Son, took on the appearance of a slave intentionally. That's what he wanted to look like. And it says, then he took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and he poured water in the basin and he went from man to man all around the table, washing each one of their feet and drying them with the towel. And and when he came to Peter, Peter objected, didn't he? God bless Peter. Peter pridefully said, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And we looked at the pride that was rooted behind that. But Jesus was so patient with him and so gracious. He, he explained, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Peter, realizing his error in that moment, says, well, then give me a full bath. <laughs> right? I dump every bit of water in that basin, not just on my feet, but on my hands, on my head, all of me. And in response, Jesus then shares this important lesson about what it means to be fully cleansed in the sight of God. And he says categorically to the 11, you are clean. You are clean. So from this point forward, you don't need a full bath. You need only to wash your feet. And the meaning of that was this. As you walk through the dirtiness of this fallen world, 
if you're found in Christ, you don't need a full bath again. You don't need to be rebathed. You can't be resaved. The only thing you need is to come to the throne of grace. Right? Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins. Receive that grace from your Savior who's interceding before the Father for you as his child. What a beautiful picture that Jesus is drawing for his disciples and for us. Even prior to the cross, he's drawing this, this picture of this once-for-all sacrifice, this once-for-all cleansing that the 11 will have. Now, today, we're going to look at the really practical aspects of this lesson. It's time for us to answer the question, what does that mean for us? We're, here we are 2,000 years later, right? The world looks very different than that moment. Even the room we're in, right, looks very different than that room. So what does this mean for us? Grab your Bibles and let's go to John chapter 13. We're going to look at just a, a handful of verses this morning. Verses 12 to 17, the, what comes after that with Judas, we'll leave that till next time. We'll get into the whole story of Judas and how he's chosen as the man of perdition. That'll be fun. So verses 12 to 17 this morning, there are four things that I want to cover this morning. I want to point out what I think are two distinct audiences for this lesson. Two distinct audiences that this lesson is pointed towards and then examine what I see are two applications for those two audiences. And it'll make sense as we, as we go along. But trust me, there is something in this story for every single person in this room. So hang with me. Got your Bibles open? Chapter 13, look at verse 12 now. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus has finished washing their feet. He has redressed himself and he has gone back to the table and put himself back in the center of this scene, right? As the father in the Passover festival. My guess is at this point, Peter having had his exchange with the master, my guess is the room is still pretty, pretty shocked by what's just happened. Still pretty quiet. And now I, I picture in my, in my mind's eye, Jesus looking at his friends dead square in the eyes. And look what he says. Do you know what I've done to you? And he just lets that hang. Do you know what I've just done to you? Now, some translations say, do you understand what I've done for you? But the meaning is the same. Do you get this? Do you know why I just did that? I know you're shocked. I know you're shocked. I know you heard Peter and I do that little, that little dance there. And I know you're not fully understanding what's happening, but I need you to know this. This is the key question, right? I've done something very symbolic for you, something very profound for you. Do you get it? And that is the key question for us. I'm just going to put it on the screen. This is the key question for us 2,000 years later. As a follower of Jesus today, do you understand the principle behind what he did that night in the upper room? Now, before we go any further, we're going to answer that question. Um, permission to do a quick historical sidebar. Okay, good. Granted. Thank you. Jesse gets it. Okay, two Sundays ago, I mentioned, and I did it fairly quickly in passing, that I don't believe that foot washing was given to the church as an ordinance in the same way that baptism and communion are. And I didn't explain why, didn't have time, but let me try to finish that thought. As you know, there are some churches and some denominations today that take Jesus' words very literally here, and they have entire services that are organized around a foot washing ritual. You'll find this in Brethren churches. 
You'll find it in Seventh-day Adventist churches, even in some Baptist denominations. You'll find foot washing. Now, there's some obvious difficulties that go with planning that type of a service, especially if your church is large. I know it can be done because there are churches doing it, but I can only imagine how hard it is to prepare for that type of thing. How do you get that much water and that many basins and that many towels if you have, say, thousands of people in your church? It's got to be very difficult. I can only imagine the mess that, <laughs> that comes from that as water is sloshing around and spilled all over the place. Now, the ironic thing is, and I've talked to people who have gone to foot washing churches, the ironic thing is, is that we don't live in a world of dirty roads anymore, right? Ours is a world of shoes and socks and pavements. And it's common knowledge in those churches, even today, that nobody comes to a foot washing service with dirty feet. Quite the opposite. Everybody makes sure they clip their, they clip their toenails the night before and they scrub better than they ever have because you don't want to gross people out. And amen and hallelujah, right? Uh, I mean, I think, I think that's fine. So in a modern day service, you end up washing clean manicured feet, right? Not exactly what was going on in that upper room in John 13. Now, to be fair, the way we do communion today isn't exactly a replica of the upper room either, okay? So we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't be too critical here, and we should be careful not to quickly dismiss things just because doing it would be hard, or, or doing it in a way that's a good, you know, a good replica of what actually happened, that's not a good reason just to, to push something aside. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with doing a foot washing service. It really isn't. It's something you may want to do with your, as if you're a, a, a husband and a dad, as a part, of a part of being the priest of your home, something you might want to do at home, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you frame it properly and you teach your way through it so that people don't believe that there's some salvific power in having your feet washed. The reason I don't recommend it as an ordinance is because the text itself seems to indicate that Jesus was teaching a principle here. That's why he says, do you understand what I've done? It's a principle. It's not commanding that we do literal foot washing until the time that he returns. And both scripture and church history bear that out. So let me explain. First of all, we don't see foot washing anywhere in the book of Acts which is where you might see it because Acts is the story of the earliest church, right? We don't see it described by Peter or Paul or even John in their letters to the churches. You're not going to see it described as something the church must do. Second, you're not going to find it anywhere in the first 300 years of the earliest church fathers. If we expect to see it anywhere, it would be in this, this book, I know I've talked about it before, called the Didache, it's the earliest church manual that we have on record, written somewhere, maybe even within the lifetime of John, somewhere around 100. And there, while there's mention in there of baptism and there's mention of communion and prayers and worship services, there is no mention of church of foot washing. Now, again, to be fair, there have been times in church history where this idea of foot washing has come back into vogue, back into a cycle of worship. We see it, for example, around the year AD 400 in the days of Augustine where the church began to ritually observe foot washing on the Thursday before Easter, basically commemorating this story in John 13. The, the term Monday Thursday uh, came about, and that term Monday just comes from the Latin for commandment. And so that became a thing. And later we see it prescribed by various popes and various monks during the medieval period. Even the Church of England for a while practiced foot washing in all of its churches. But then came the Reformation. And you know exactly what the Reformers had to say about this, right? Luther, 
God bless Luther, called it an abominable papal corruption. He always held back, didn't he? Calvin was even more extreme. Look at this quote from Calvin about foot washing. He says, Every year, speaking of Monday, Thursday, they hold a theatrical foot washing. And when they have discharged this empty and bare ceremony, they think they have done their duty finally and are then free to despise their brethren. And thus they spit in the face of Christ himself. This ceremonial comedy is nothing but a shameful mockery of Christ. Now, Again, to be fair, okay, because we want to make sure we balance this out, the reason why Luther and Calvin were so harsh about this was not the practice itself, which can be edifying. They were upset about the way that the Roman Catholic doctrine had built this thing up as if it had some type of salvific power. So that's the history. We, just, we look at the text and we don't see it as an ordinance that we should do. Could you go home and do it? Absolutely. If it's done right, it can be a beautiful thing, but it's not an ordinance given to the church. Okay, historical sidebar closed. All right, thanks for that. So if we're convicted that it's not literally something we should be doing, we still have to figure out what the principle is behind it. Here's the first thing that we should acknowledge in this. Looking back at it, we see that Jesus' simple act of foot washing in that upper room anticipated and pictured a much greater sacrifice that he was about to do, right? And of course, I'm speaking of the cross. The 12 don't realize that, right? As their feet are being washed. They're stunned. They're confused. But Jesus is foreshadowing something much greater that's, that's to come. He's going to do far more than wash dirty feet. I mean, look, I'm a, I, I don't like feet. I'm just going to be honest with you. Is, am I the only one? I just, I'm, I don't even like my own feet. I just don't like feet. So to me, this is a pretty unpleasant thing. But not only is Jesus willing to do that, to wash dirty, filthy feet, he's willing to do far more than that. He is actually willing to be arrested, to be tortured, and to die for the very men whose feet he was washing that night, to save them from their sins. This is a great Savior, right? So that's the overarching, glorious foreshadowing that was taking place that night. But again, the 12 have no idea at this point What Jesus did want them to know is what we find in the next few verses. And this is where we come to what I call our first audience. Here's our first audience for this particular lesson. I want to start this morning by speaking to leaders here at Oak Hill. And I want to speak to anybody in here who aspires to be a leader in the church someday. Who aspires to be a leader, not in your church, but in Christ's church. Because I think that's a powerful lesson in this for anybody who's a leader. So pastors, elders, deacons, ministry directors, C-group leaders, women's council, anybody who aspires to someday serve in Christ's church. And here's why this is important. Because someday, if you become a leader in the church, you're going to take on a role where other people are going to look to you to show them who Jesus is. And And I want the weight of that to sit on you for just a moment. Because this is the weight that leaders carry. There are people in congregations who will look to you as a leader and say, I need to know who Jesus is. I need to know both an attitude and action what Jesus looks like. And so I'm looking to you. As you follow Jesus, I want to follow you. That is a heavy responsibility. But that's, that's the responsibility that church leaders bear. So let the weight of that sit. This is why being a church leader is such a serious thing. Because people are going to look to you to lead them in the pattern of Jesus. In that upper room on the night of his betrayal, Jesus knew as he looked around that room that he was speaking to the first 11 leaders of this thing that he had called Ecclesia, my church. 
These were going to be the guys, right? As immature as they were that night, as clueless as they were, he's looking around the room and going, these are my guys. I mean, my church isn't going to fail, right? He was very clear about that. But these are the guys that are going to be those first 11 leaders. And he recognized that being a leader in this fledgling operation was going to be a huge temptation for them. A huge temptation. After all, they had, they had just proven that point by on the way into the room arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Clueless, right? They weren't arguing about, well, who's the holiest amongst us or who's the best servant? They were like, no, who's going to be the most high and exalted? Can you see Jesus' concern on the night before he's taken away? So this lesson in foot washing went straight to the heart of what it means to be a leader in Jesus' church. It's as if Jesus was saying to them, hey guys, look, let me show you the type of man that you have to become if you're going to represent me. Soon I'm going to send you out and you're going to go out in my name, under my authority and with my word. And when people welcome you and your message, they're going to welcome me. And if they welcome me, they're going to welcome my Father in heaven. That means there's no higher calling or no greater mission that you can have in your years on the earth. So I want to prepare you for this. No longer can you think and act like the world does, lording your power over others. Watch what I'm going to do here tonight. I want to prepare you for this. This is a lesson that these guys desperately needed, right? And we all do to some extent, right? A lesson in humility. To be reminded of who we are in Christ. And then to make his case, Jesus employs a very specific approach. He uses what, he calls a, what we call a greater to lesser argument. Look at verse 13. He says, You call me Dadaskalas Kai Hakurias, teacher and Lord. Very specific terms. Teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And the implication would have been obvious to all. There's nobody in that room that night who doubted who was the greatest man in the room. They all knew. He was the teacher. He was the Lord. He was the rabbi and their master. And by any ordinary standard of the world, he should be the one being served. Everybody knew that. And in that day, even more than today, men in positions of authority were always served, even more so than today. Always served. They never served others. And certainly they never acted like a slave or dressed themselves like a slave. This was just, this was beyond fathoming for that culture. But now Jesus says, see that the kingdom of God is not the same as the world. See that your standards are not my standards. In my kingdom, the standard is not top-down. In fact, the greatest among you will be your servant. Mind blown. So if I, as Lord, wash your dirty feet, then surely you can go and do the same to others. A greater to lesser argument. Then he explains in verse 15, For I gave you an example. And the Greek word there means, I gave you a pattern, something to imitate. Gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So rather than arguing about who's the greatest, just grab a towel, assume the posture of a servant, lay aside your garments. In fact, lay aside more than your garments. Lay aside any high standing you thought you had. Lay aside your rank and your status. Lay aside any privileges or rights that you think you're owed and start washing feet. Hmm. Then he piles on with this truth bomb in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
In other words, pay attention. A slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent, and that's a reference to an ambassador. No ambassador is greater than the one who sent him. So this is a very simple proverb. No servant has the right to say that a task is beneath me if my master has already done it. How could I do that? My master does this. How can I say that that's beneath me? No ambassador signs on to represent his master, but then refuses to identify with him once he's sent out into the field. So leaders and future leaders in Jesus' church, look at this example, both in attitude and in actions. Church leadership is never about acquiring power or acquiring control. It's always about sacrificial service. I didn't learn that lesson growing up. I'm going to be honest with you. Before I went into ministry, I wasn't taught that well. I wasn't even taught that well in seminary. In fact, seminary puffed me up, puffed up my head more than humbled me. This comes as a shock to people. But you say, wait, hold on a second. Isn't there some authority vested in church leadership? Of course there is. Because God wants to order his church, right? And yes, congregations need to respect their leaders. They need to honor their leaders. They need to to yield to their leaders. But leaders need to understand you are a servant and you are not greater than your master. You are an ambassador and you represent the one who sent you, not yourself. Your calling is to serve Jesus by leading and feeding and caring for his sheep. And trust me, that is never easy. It's never convenient. It's never without criticism. But that's the calling and that's the job. Again, this is a challenging principle for so many young men I see coming through seminary. They're all puffed up with knowledge, right? They think they're the next Charles Spurgeon. They expect to be admired and fawned over because they've seen some other guy, some some other guy they love and respect, and they've admired and fawned over him, so they expect that's going to happen in their lives. They revel in the idea of being called pastor or senior pastor, right? Because we love titles in America, right? So they revel in that. And they expect that everything is going to go so easily. There's going to be great success and consistent church growth. And all that growth is going to allow them more time to sit in their study and read books and dispense wisdom to anybody who will listen to them. And then the hard truth comes about what leadership in the church really looks like. Being pastor might just require that you're the first one into the building on a Sunday to sweep the floor and make the coffee. Being the pastor might mean unclogging toilets and mopping up after plumbing accidents. I have done all of those things as a pastor. That's the reality of it. Being a church leader will require you to get down into the grime and the muck of this fallen world. Dealing with sheep whose lives are messy, who need a lot of attention. Leaders, washing feet is not a glamorous lifestyle. So be careful before you sign up for it, thinking it's something that it's not. Jesus never promised it would be. What he promised was that as leaders, we'd have to grab the water basin and grab that towel and start scrubbing. In fact, Jesus would say the only leaders in his church who qualify to be a leader is one who will grab the water basin and the towel and start scrubbing. So that's audience number one. And that is such an important principle. And trust me, I'm preaching to myself as I say this. And I'm preaching to anybody here who right now is serving as a leader at Oak Hill or wants to serve someday in any local church. There's a huge lesson here. Okay, that's audience number one. All right, what if you're not a leader? 
this morning? What if you're here this morning, came for church, you're like, well, that's not me, I can check out. Here's the truth. The example Jesus sets in this story is particularly important for leaders. Why? Because leaders are under a greater temptation to fall into the sin of pride and to act out of selfishness, to act out of a desire for power. But still, the principle behind this foot-washing scene applies across the board to every single Christian in this room. Not the same way as leaders, but it applies to everybody who claims the name of Christ. Remember, Paul wrote Philippians 2, not just to leaders, but to every Christian, right? To all believers. And he said this, and I'm paraphrasing, have the same attitude that Jesus did. I mean, if you want to tape up a, a great challenging statement on your mirror in your bathroom, that's a great phrase. Have the same attitude that Jesus did. If we can do that, man, we're ahead of the game. He gave up everything and took on the form of a servant, humbling himself for your sake, even to the point of death on a cross. And so in response to his example, consider the needs of every other believer more important than your own needs. That's the response, right? That's the calling for every Christian follower here at Oak Hill. And imagine, imagine what kind of a church we would have if every single believer adopted that as their, as their, their theme, for life and godliness, life in the church, that everybody else's needs were more important than my own, that we all sought to outduel each other, outserve each other. Imagine the power of a local church that does that. It's really quite simple. See what Jesus has done and then go and do likewise, right? He goes to the cross. We take up our cross and follow him. He dies. We consider ourselves having died with him. He's loved us, so we set out to love one another. If you're a true disciple, the New Testament says you've been purchased by his blood. Don't just skim past that. You've been purchased by his blood. That means you don't belong to yourself any longer. Yeah, but Jeff, I love to plan my life. Sorry. Sorry. You don't belong to yourself. Man, some of us are still fighting that, aren't we? We're gripping on, no, it's my life. I will do as I please. <laughs> Not only do you belong to Christ, but you belong to every other person who belongs to him. Right? Now what Paul says, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You belong to Christ and you belong to every other person who belongs to Christ. That's us in your church family. So, not just leaders, but all of us we grab that wash basin and we gird ourselves with a towel and we start washing feet. Now, those are the two audiences. We got leaders and we got all, the whole congregation. Let's now talk about the two particular applications. And I, oh gosh, there it is. Sorry, I forgot about the rest of you. <laughs> Let's just do that. The rest of you. I get so excited, I forget to click. All right. My clicker. <laughs> All right, so two applications. The first one I've, I've sort of hit on a little bit uh, this morning. But listen, we all have a responsibility to be involved in basic menial service to one another. Basic menial service. What, I'm what am I talking about? I'm talking about the grunt work that makes church go. 
right? It's the engine that makes everything happen. All the, all the things that have to get done week after week, month after month, year after year. Foot washing in the first, first century Israel was not a pleasant task, but it was necessary and it was beneficial. And that's the way we need to see our menial service to the church as necessary and beneficial to others. But who's going to do it? Disciples. That's who. Every one of us. That's who. When we get to verse 35 in this chapter, we're going to read. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By this. If you will express your love for one another in doing simple menial tasks, even if they're unpleasant, the world will know that you belong to Jesus. If you'll volunteer to serve a group of people who are undeserving of it, if you'll do the tasks that most people are unwilling to do, if you'll sacrifice your time and your energy to serve Jesus by serving his church and to do it without any expectation of being thanked, people will know that you belong to Jesus. Most of all, if you're motivated to serve by a true love for Christ and for his people, then you will show the world that you belong to him. That's the truth. I remember um, once reading a story about Amy Carmichael. I mean, you know the story of Amy Carmichael? Famous Irish missionary uh, to India, spent more than 50 years in India uh, spreading the gospel. And she had a very, very specific way of living out this principle. If you know anything about the culture in India, there's a very rigid caste system. So you're born into a social level or a social caste. And so if you're born into a higher caste, you live a life of privilege. If you're born into one of the lower castes, tough luck. You are going to live a life of misery and servitude. And unlike America, there is absolutely no path to, to leave that lower caste and rise above what you're born into. It's awful. So in light of that system, the mission that Amy Carmichael founded required, get this now, required that a higher caste convert to Christianity take up a pick and a shovel and literally dig the foundations of houses that they built for people in the lower caste and to do it in public. Nothing in Indian culture could be more degrading than that. But the point was obvious. If you transcend the world's standards and wash the feet of others, you will show them what it looks like to belong to Jesus. And they did in India for more than 50 years under her leadership. So while we don't have official foot washing services here at Oak Hill, I want you to consider all kinds of things, just simple menial tasks that are necessary and beneficial to our life as a body. I'm just going to give you a partial list. Band and chair set up Sunday mornings, bright and early. All you guys who rolled in at 1015, woo, amen. People have been here for three hours, right? Three hours. Making the coffee, picking up the donuts, working on the audio team and the sound team or the worship team, then stacking chairs after the service and wrapping all those cords. And man, we're a mobile church. It takes a lot of work. I know I've said this before, but the book says a, a mobile church won't survive for more than five years. It's just too tiring. Well, we're in year 16, man. Amen. We're rolling cords and we're packing things up. It's amazing, right? I mean, that's, part, that's why it's hard to belong to Oak Hill because it takes work. But you gotta, we got to stack the chairs after the service and we got to sweep the floor and we got to break down all the equipment, all the acorn gear across the way that has to get broken down. Then we got to transport all that stuff on carts out to our storage shed in the parking lot. It's exhausting. 
but it's essential. It's essential to our life as a church. It's beneficial to all. And it's not just Sundays. How about serving the body midweek? Many of you serve at the underground or you serve in youth ministry. You help Meredith do lesson prep for our littles, right? You serve in some capacity in a community group. You volunteer at the evangelism table. Committing yourself to being an active participant on your particular service group, care team, impact team, body life team. You recognize that that is a powerful ministry and you want to be involved in that. Or just simple things like helping people move. We already talked about it this morning. Picking up somebody at the airport when they need a ride. Hosting a blessing table at a member communion service. Guys, I could go on and on and on, but you get the point, right? This basic menial service that makes local church go, it is foot washing. It is foot washing. And we would not be able to survive as a church, let alone thrive without it. So listen, if you enjoy being a part of the Oak Hill family here, if you're benefiting from the ministry here, but you're sitting on the outer edge of the body right now and you're not washing feet in any way, today should be a valuable wake-up call because we need everybody's ministry. We need everybody's giftedness. And so I hope you'll move toward the center of body life here, both for your sake and for the sake of the rest of the body. So that you can live out this command. Jesus said it. I gave you an example, he said. To the 11, yes, but by extension to us. I gave you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Will you take that seriously? Spurgeon. I'm going to go back to Spurgeon. Listen to how Spurgeon describes this thing. He says, says, if there's a position in the church where the worker will have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. Now, why would he say that? Because Jesus smiles. Your audience of one is happy with you. doesn't matter if anybody thanks you. Jesus is happy. He goes on, If you can perform a service which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate when performed by others, occupy it with holy delight. I love that. Covet humble work. And when you get it, be content to continue in it. Don't give up. Stick with it because Jesus is watching. I love the last name. And he says, there is no great rush after the lowest places. You will rob no one by seeking them. <laughs> Virgin sense of humor. So good. Wow, there's so much truth in that though, right? Your audience have won. Basic foot washing in the church. All right, here's the second application. And this one's more important. And this one often gets overlooked because we have a tendency, tendency to see Jesus' example as purely practical. Well, you got to get dirt off feet, right? But there is a spiritual aspect to this foot washing that's at play here. And it happens as we all minister to one another, the one another's to each other within the body of Christ. It's the spiritual part of foot washing. Now, I don't have time to walk through all of the one another's in Scripture. We're pretty familiar with what they are. But I want you to think for a second about the practice of foot washing. I want you to go back in your mind's eye to that upper room and see how Jesus expressed this in that room. Consider what Jesus was doing in that moment spiritually. What kind of ministry was he modeling spiritually? Not just practically. Look, any, any, you know, any schlep can, can clean dirt off a foot, right? But there was more going on, right? What type of ministry was Jesus modeling here? It was a ministry of cleansing. And it was a ministry of forgiveness. 
It was a ministry of bearing others' burdens. It was a ministry of hospitality. It was a ministry of refreshment. It was a ministry of encouragement. And it was a ministry of brotherly love. Yeah, he wiped actual dirt off of feet. But there was so much more going on. And that's the way we need to look at this. Yeah, there's all the practical menial things. That has to happen. But there's so much more powerful things happening within the body of Christ, the spiritual aspect, and even higher calling than just washing feet. Again, don't get me wrong. The practical aspects are really important. But the spiritual ministries that we see in that, it's the core of the gospel in the local church. This is how we help a brother or sister wash the grime and the dirt and the sin of this world from his or her feet symbolically. This is how we point members of our church family back to Christ. Over and over again, we wash and we dry one another's feet. It's not just a one-time thing. Over and over again, as we get dirty in the world, right? As we just pick up dirt, as we stumble into sin, over and over again, we wash each other's feet and we dry them. Over and over again, we point then people back to the Word of God and to worship, right? We restore one another when we fall. Over and over again, we forgive if, if we've been hurt. Over and over again, we bear with people who are going through hard times. Over and over again, we offer them hospitality. Over and over again, we encourage and we build up. And in doing all of those things, we refresh their souls by our love. That's the spiritual aspect of foot washing. I mean, it's great. if you walk away here and go, man, I'm more committed than ever to, to stacking chairs. Amen. That's fantastic. But I really want you to see this. This is really the core of it, the spiritual side of this, of this foot washing. How are you doing with that side of it? Let me challenge you with that. Again, if you're sitting on the outside rim of our body, how are you living out this command spiritually? to wash one another's feet here in this church family. To that end, let's look at our final verse in the text, verse 17. Man, this is so convicting. Jesus says, if you know these things, and that's rhetorical, we know these things, right? You are blessed if you what? Oh. Oh, shoot. You mean we just can't know it? We gotta do it? It's a Nike commercial, right? <laughs> there's the knowing of the principle, and then there's the doing. And we all know this, right? You go to your average evangelical church, 90% plus of the people know the principle, but only the 10 are actually doing it. It's everywhere. It's not just in the church. It's in almost every organization, right? We know the principle, but we don't do it. The theory of being humble, the theory of being a servant is about as valuable as a screen door on a submarine. I just dated myself with that saying. <laughs> the theory of knowing those things can't buy you a cup of coffee. There's no value to them because you just know them. Big deal. That's not hard. Book smarts only have value when they get applied in real life settings with real life people. It's the doing of servanthood that pleases Christ, not just the knowing. Never forget how Jesus, in his public ministry, looked out at the crowds and he looked at me and said, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I tell you? What, 
Why are you wasting your time calling me Lord, Lord, if you will not do what I command? Duh. And then he went on to describe the person who doesn't act upon what Jesus says. He says, you're like a person who builds a house without a foundation. The storm comes and what happens? It all just collapses. Why does it collapse? Because the house is fake. It's just built with flimsy walls, so it collapses. And so is a professing disciple of Jesus who hears what the master commands, but doesn't care enough to put it into practice. He's a fake. He's got a flimsy veneer of religion, and that's it. Take this seriously. So we got to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. And, and here's the really challenging part that some of you are not going to like. You're not going to like this. Living out this command of foot washing requires depth of relationship with other people. I'm talking about the spiritual aspect of it, the one and others. And look, I'm, man, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an introvert like many of you. So I, I feel your pain in this. Okay? I'm a na- this part of my job is actually the easy part. The hard part is afterwards when I have to go up and talk to you. I'm just be- moment of transparency. I'm an introvert. But I have to do it, right? I'm commanded to do it. I'm commanded to love you. Regardless of my personality. Regardless of what I find difficult or easy. Living out Jesus' example of foot washing spiritually requires depth of relationship with other people. You cannot just sit in the chairs week after week. You cannot avoid church event after church event and expect depth of relationship to magically happen. That is... That is Unbiblical, magical thinking. It will not happen. You can't text this one in. You can't call an Uber, right? You can't go to your, sit on your couch and go to your service app on your phone and wash people's feet. I mean, you could try. It'd be pretty lame. It requires a sometimes uncomfortable closeness to wash somebody's feet. And uncomfortably close to say, go ahead and wash my feet. It requires being open and honest and even vulnerable with trusted brothers and sisters. Because you have to let other people see, okay, my feet are dirty too. And I know this is hard. And I know there's a lot of excuses for why we can't do it or why we won't do it. I've been in ministry for more than 20 plus years. I think I've heard every possible excuse. I've used some of them myself. (laughs) So I get it. In his day, C.S. Lewis talked about this. I'm going to give you a really great quote. And, 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 this, and I, I saw myself in this quote, so I thought I would share it. Sometimes we can think about really big things and completely skip over the basics. Here, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He goes, I believe that the men of this age think too much about the state of nations and the situation of the world. We're not kings, we're not senators, but in the poor man who knocks at my door... In my ailing mother, in the young man who seeks my advice, the Lord himself is present. Therefore, let us wash his feet. Some of us are too lost in the the big things of this world, like we can control it, like we have power over it, like we're going to fix the economy, right? Or we're going to stop this from happening. There's somebody right now who needs their feet washed. So lay that mess aside and go scrub somebody's feet. That's the more important task. To the extent that you wash the feet of the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me, Jesus would tell you. 
And listen, is there anybody in this room who, if Jesus said, hey, I need my feet washed, we would race to wash his feet, wouldn't we? Come on. We'd be fighting over who could wash his feet. Well, he said, do it to the least of my brothers, and you've done it unto me. So what's our excuse for not washing feet? The reality is, in most cases, here, here's just the honest, the honest feeling. I just don't want to wash feet. It, it sounds really unpleasant. <laughs> and you know what? I, just, I like doing what I like to do. So don't bug me with this feet washing thing. If you're honest, that may be you. It's good to be honest, right? Be honest before God. But then look at the command and say, I need to change my thinking. I need to change the way I'm living in the body of Christ. It's time to get my hands dirty. So I want everybody here this morning to consider this. It comes down to whether or not we're willing to die to self and follow the example of our teacher and Lord. And only you can answer that in your heart right now about where you stand in relation to that question. Am I willing to die to myself? Am I willing to live out this command that my teacher and my Lord has given to me? But let me just point out this last thing, and I'm done, I promise. There's a great promise in verse 17. If you want encouragement, if you're like, man, Jeff, you're hammering us with this this morning, can I just give you an encouragement? It's right there in verse 17. You are blessed by God if you do these things. Everybody walked in here this morning going, I wish God would bless me. Okay, <laughs> let's do what he says. Amen? Do you, I mean, do you trust the promises of Christ? Uh, I don't know. He said, he said he blessed me, but I'm not sure. None of us would say that. We trust the promises of Christ. If so, trust this, that extending yourself towards others and the body, even at first it's hard or painful or messy, it's going to bring the blessing of God into your life. Trust Jesus that if you'll humble yourself in practical service, and in the spiritual one another's here at Oak Hill, that God is going to grant you a sense of gladness and joy that you never thought possible. Do you believe that? That's what it means to be blessed, to have a sense of gladness and joy in the Lord. There are many people here who can testify to this truth because they've, they've lived on both sides of this divide. Listen, gladness and joy do not come from people going, you're the best. Oh, you're so good. We think that's what we want, but that's really not where it comes from. The deepest joys in life are found when you serve others. And some of you can testify to that. There's nothing more powerful. I've, I've, I don't know if this is even appropriate, but I've called it a drug. It's my drug. When I can invest in people's lives and wash their feet in some spiritual way and see them mature and grow in the Lord, it's like a drug. I want to go back and get more of it because it brings such gladness and joy. Not glory to me, but glory to him. Try it. Trust the promises of God. Trust that if you follow this example of the master in the upper room, that he will bless you in ways that you can't even imagine. And together, let's commit. I know no water basins up here, but symbolically, let's grab our water basins and let's start scrubbing each other's feet. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads. Jesus, I am so grateful that you, you taught this lesson 2,000 years ago to a group of men who are so much like me, oftentimes clueless, not seeing the forest for the trees, not sure what you're doing, Lord, and yet you are gracious and patient 
And you chose not just to tell them, but to show them. And so we are a thankful people today that 2,000 years later, we can look at that example and say, okay, Lord, I get it. I get it. I need to start practically serving. I need to start living out the one another's. I need to draw closer to people. So Lord, I pray that you'll continue to challenge us with this lesson, even as we continue on in the coming weeks in this chapter, that we'll keep coming back to this, Lord. Keep reminding us of our need to wash one another's feet. And God, even this morning as we're about to sing some more, Lord, I pray, I pray that even as we give this morning, as the ushers are going to come forward in just a moment, that, that Lord, you would move in our hearts to, to be more invested in worship, worship through song, worship through giving, worship through the studying of your word, worship through service. Continue to conform us to the image of Jesus. We all need it, Lord, and we thank you for the work you're doing in us by your spirit. Be with us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.